this is the same lie the devil tells us. He tells us that we are not like our father, that we need to go out and get money or relationships or status, and then we will feel the completion we so desperately desire. He tells us that we need to do these things or go to these places or act this way, and then we will feel whole. But what happened in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve did what the devil suggested would make them like God, and it separated them from God. And that is the case with many of our own choices. We are so desperately looking to be whole that we go out and do things searching for it, thinking it will fill that void, but it pulls us further and further away from our Father. That is the lie that the devil told. Hey, welcome to Night Church, the Friday evening service of Praxis, the young adult ministry of the Loma Linda University Church. You're going to be hearing some great sermons, testimonies on this podcast that are going to encourage and deepen your faith. We are so excited that you're here, and I hope you enjoy this sermon, and so much so that you share it with someone that you love. Welcome. everyone. My name is Ezrika Bennett. I'm one of the young adult elders here, and I'm really excited to be with you guys tonight. Uh, I promised myself and God three things as I've been prepping for the sermon. So we as the elders, we've known about these sermon series for quite some time, so I've had a lot of time to think about this. But I promised God and myself three things. The first is that I would speak as if this was my last time speaking. I would come and I would leave it all on the stage. The second is I would, leave, I would speak a message that 17-year-old Ezrika wished she could have heard. And the third is I will be honest and authentic because I do believe God has given me the opportunity to be on this stage today and I think it is my duty to honor that. And lastly, I've prayed for each and every one of you. Some of you I knew would be here because I invited you. <laughs> I told all my friends to come. <laughs> my mom is watching too. Um, but uh, others of you, I don't know maybe your name or your story, but I do pray that God will speak to you in a way that I cannot. And so let's journey today into the story of Esther. Um, on the screen, you will see a picture of a painting. This painting is entitled Checkmate. What you see depicted in this painting here, to my right is the devil, to my left is humanity or a human being. In this painting, if you look at their countenances, you will see that the devil, he looks confident in a snide way, and the human being, he looks like he is on the verge of defeat. Now, I don't play chess, but the painting depicts the devil about to call checkmate. And if he wins, what happens is this human being or humanity loses their soul. So the story goes like this. This painting hung in the Louvre in France. And one day, a grandmaster of chess came in and he started to observe the painting. 
He spent a good amount of time in front of it, looking, 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 much to the dismay of the people around him, until eventually he went to the curator of the museum and said, the title for this painting does not make sense. And why did he say this? Well, checkmate, it suggests that the devil is going to win. But being a grandmaster and exceptionally skilled at chess, he realized that the human being had one more move left. And not only was there one more move left, that move would win him the game. So in a moment, it went from seeming like the devil was about to win his soul to a grand realization that there is one more move. I realize that this often happens in our life and in history, where it seems like the battle we fight is over. It seems like the devil is on the verge of getting the victory, but God says there is one more move. There is always one more move. And much to our surprise, we will find that very often that one last move includes our involvement. At least that was the case with the story of Esther, the book that we will be talking about tonight. There are many meaningful lessons we can take away from this book, but Esther as a book is well known for is well known for being a book that does not mention the name of God at all. And so, as we study together tonight, we ask the question, where is God? We ask the question, where is God? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so very much for this day. Thank you for your love. Please be with me as I share what I think or I know you've put on my heart, be with all my friends, which is everyone in here, open their hearts and let them hear you and know you and see you. I pray in your name, amen. To understand the lessons of the book, I think it's necessary to dive deep into the key characters in this story. There are five main characters. The first one is King Ahasuerus or Xerxes. Fun fact, that is my nickname. I've been called Xerxes for as long as I can remember by my big sister and little brother. They're also watching. Hi, guys. Uh, <laughs> another key character is Haman. And then there is Mordecai, Esther, and a surprise guest that we'll talk about later. So let's take a deeper dive into the various characters and what seems to be a series of random events, but they make up a divine chess game. So to give a synopsis of the book of Esther to those who've never read or even heard of it, the book of Esther chronicles the story of a woman who is chosen almost at random to be the queen. Ironically, her cousin Mordecai was also a worker in the palace who became entangled in a situation when Haman, one of the most powerful men in the kingdom, hated him because Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman and to acknowledge his power. Haman, having the power, the position, and the resources to invest in the king's treasury, decided that he would eradicate the person he hates the most, which is Mordecai, but he took it a step further and was like, oh, I'm actually going to kill all the Jews. And he did this through a, a duplicitous means, I guess, by convincing the king that there were people in the kingdom who did not honor and respect him. Unbeknown to Haman, 
Esther was a part of the group he was trying to eradicate. Esther defies the rules of the kingdom. She appeals to the king. She saves the day. It truly is a beautiful story, or so it seems. In the end, Haman, the man who sought to kill all the Jews, built a gallows for, uh, for Mordecai, and he ended up hanging from the very gallows he built for his enemy. As a result of the victory that was won through the courage of Esther, a celebration Purim, which means lot, because uh, when Haman was trying to decide the day that the Jews should be killed, he cast lot and, and, and decided on the day. But to this day in Jewish culture, Purim is one of the most joyous celebrations. Fun fact, I will be celebrating it next day. Next year, you're invited to come to my house. I'll bake the pastries. Um, and this is one of the most joyous celebrations in Jewish culture today. So we start this divine game of chess. The first to make a move is King Ahasuerus or Xerxes. Uh, King Xerxes, in the beginning of the book, decided that he was going to throw a party. But not just any party. It was going to be a party that lasted 180 days, half of a year. What a waste of time. <laughs> just kidding. That might have been fun. No, that's too much. <laughs> After he threw the party for 180 days, King Ahasuerus then threw another feast for the people in the kingdom, and that lasted seven days. His wife, Vashti, also, she was the queen, also threw a feast for the people of the town. Um, the Bible tells us if we go to Esther 1, chapter, chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, it tells us that on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was cheerful with wine, he ordered his eunuchs, who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal turban in order to display her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's order. Uh, delivered by the eunuchs. So the king became very angry and his wrath burned with him, within him. I did some research because that's a smart thing to do when you're studying the Bible. And I realized, or according to some sources, I don't know if it's credible, I wasn't there at the party, but they said when the, word, the words royal turban imply that the king was asking Vashti to come parade in front of his men naked. The only thing she would have on was her crown. Not only then did the king become so angry at Vashti saying no, all of the men in the room were like, mm, this is risky because if Vashti gets away with talking back to you, all the other women in the kingdom will think they can do the same. And so if we turn to Esther chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, it tells us that one of his advisors, uh, and I, I don't know why I always think advisors are so, like, annoying, because all they do is, like, suck up to the king. Anyways, I guess that's their job. But one of his advisors suggests, hey, let's make a law. Let's make a royal edict so that no woman will ever defy her husband again. And not only that, this, in the verse it tells us that they, they decided they would look for a queen that is more worthy. Vashti was banished for standing up for herself. In modern day terms, like think about it. Imagine if you were dating someone or your husband was like, hey babe, <laughs> come in with just your crown. I want to show you to my friends. 
we would be like, are you, what? <laughs> Red flag, how did I even marry you? But like, <laughs> and back then, that wasn't the case. Like, we all agree that that is a very normal response to being asked to parade in the nude. But in her time, in the time of uh, Xerxes and Vashti, it was not normal. And so um, I want us to take a moment, actually, to reflect on what it looks like when someone in power has the ability to make laws that govern the bodies of other people. I want us to take a moment to consider what it looks like when someone in power has the ability to make laws to silence someone. Because Vashti was banished because they couldn't have her power being displayed. They couldn't have the kingdom knowing that she spoke up. They needed to make an example of her. Anyways, after a while, the king realized he was dumb, and <laughs> he missed Vashti. He's like, oh, man, what have I done? So again, with these little advisors, they came up with this great plan that we will take all of the most beautiful women in the kingdom and we'll make them compete to be the next queen. Um, if you think about it, actually, I'm just thinking about it now, like all the children after this decision probably like they weren't that cute because all the beautiful women were sent to the king. It wasn't a thought out plan. <laughs> but anyway, so yes, all of the beautiful women, they were sent into the king. And they were beautiful in their exterior, of course. That was a requirement. But I've always, when I was younger and I read the book of Esther, it always seemed like such an honor to be like one of the women that are like, oh my gosh, they got a year's worth of treatment, six months of perfume, six months of oil. Like who doesn't want that? Except for when you realize they were just glorified slaves. They weren't there because they wanted to be. They didn't choose this. This isn't a spa vacation. This is them getting ready to almost go to the slaughter. Because culturally what would happen is when you go into the king, if he doesn't choose you, you become nameless. Your, your, your rest of, the rest of your life is relegated to you being entertainment to the king at his whim. So all of a sudden the spa doesn't look so great. I still do like perfume though. I want you guys though to consider the anxiety that the women had to feel when for an entire year, their sole purpose was to get ready to go into the king. And I know we feel this anxiety because in a sense, many of our, like a lot of our lives, we've been trained to do one thing, find a partner. And the anxiety that comes with that the way we end up being picked against each other, it's really not a godly thing. And this is what I imagine they experience. When I realized that this was probably the most stressful year of their life, again, it changed the narrative of Esther for me. Here we see the implications of a king. Here we see the implications of King Xerxes. His choice permanently uprooted so many women from their lives. They never get to go back home. They were forced to leave their family. If they were of age to be married, it is likely that they might have been in love with someone. Someone that was in the kingdom left their fiance behind. Their lives were changed forever. And perhaps um, they, were, they were forced after not being chosen by the king to live out in obscurity, nameless, faceless, and forgotten. 
I want us to consider this point. When human beings choose, because this isn't actually just about like man versus woman, but when human beings make, cho- beings make cho- choices, their choice will be based on selfish ambition and the fulfillment of their own desire. Never once did Xerxes think, how would this decision affect these women? Quite frankly, he didn't care. And so, in this divine game of chess, Xerxes makes his first move. We are now introduced to the beautiful Queen Esther. But in order to understand why Esther was chosen, let's reflect again a bit on the story of Vashti. Vashti was not exiled because she lost her beauty. In fact, the story starts off with King Ahasuerus being like, my wife is so fine, I need everyone to see it. Um, Which is, I mean, that's a nice gesture, just not naked. Um, But Vashti obviously was very beautiful. So she wasn't rejected for her beauty. Vashti was rejected for her voice. She was rejected because she was willing to speak up. And so the next queen that they chose had to be the exact opposite. She had to be beautiful, yes. But more than likely, she had to have the disposition where they would never run into the same problem. Queen Esther wasn't just chosen because she was gorgeous. She was chosen because she was beautiful, but also perhaps docile, submissive, and silent. The king needed to make sure that what happened with Vashti would never happen again. And when you think of it in that terms, it makes being chosen as the queen not that idyllic. It is not as beautiful as I think I grew up thinking or imagining. But there is still so much beauty in this story. Esther was chosen because she seemed like she did not have a voice. I want, to con- I wanna, I want us to consider these points as well. We discussed that when human beings choose, they choose from their selfish um, desires. Another thing is when human beings choose, when humanity chooses, it pits you against others and it highlights the qualities that benefit those who are choosing and discredits the qualities of those who are not being chosen. When humanity chooses, it, it chooses from a place of scarcity. And it will do so in a way that keeps you fit in the box. Esther wasn't chosen for everything she was. Esther was not just beautiful, but I think she had a good heart. And you can tell that because of the choices she made towards the end of this book. But that is not the reason Esther was chosen. And so what I want us to consider, again, we're doing a deep dive into the characters, and then we're going to make sense of this story. King Xerxes represents the culture. He represents the standards, the governing ideologies. He represents those who decide and tell us who and what we should be. He represents those in power, whatever the power stands for, and privilege, but doesn't have the character to back it up. And when you have power, and privilege, but no character, people will always be hurt. And Esther in this story represents the the person that fits perfectly into the standards set forth by mankind. Esther represents a person who is honored for every reason other than the truth of who she was. Esther represents losing your life to the ideals of someone else. Esther even had to hide her Jewish identity to assimilate to the culture. And so, despite 
a bad start to this story, while Xerxes made his move, Esther's life and Esther being chosen was still a counter move for the divine. I want you to reflect on something really quickly. How many of us have experienced this, like we've had the experience of being an Esther, so to speak? We were chosen for what we do, for what we look like. We were chosen against our will, maybe at a a young age, our innocence robbed, and the shame of someone else's decision conferred on us. We were forced into a career because that's what our parents wanted. We were unable to leave a relationship because we were told that our relationship status defined our worth. How many of us today are living a life we didn't choose? The way Esther was. And so the next character in this divine chess game is Haman. And I don't like Haman. You know how like in movies the evil character just has a look? I imagine Haman looks like a weasel. Like I just, he just gives me weasel vibes. Even the name Haman. Like, so the synopsis of Haman is Haman was elevated to power. He ended up being one of the most powerful men in the, in the, in the um, kingdom. Um, Mordecai, again, refused to bow down. Haman was annoyed. We kind of went over this. And so Haman's decision was to not only get rid of Mordecai, but also he was going to get rid of all of the Jewish people. In the midst of this divine chess game, just these random moving parts, uh, Mordecai overhears some of like the king's guards plotting to kill the king. Mordecai tells Esther, Esther reports it to the king, the king is saved. There's this really interesting interchange where Haman ends up honoring Mordecai for his sacrifice or for his integrity. And as you can imagine, Haman the weasel did not enjoy that. Uh, Mordecai is also the person that encouraged Esther to go into the king when they realized that they were going to be banned or they were go- that his people were going to be wiped out. Mordecai is the one that pleaded with Esther to take up her privilege and to use her voice. In the end, as I mentioned before, Haman is the one that hung on the gallows that he built for Mordecai. You know what Haman represents? He represents the selfishness of humanity. Haman made a decision that only benefited him. I want us for a moment to consider justice. But not justice as we always talk about it, like justice on a grand scale, which is important and it has its place, like the marches and, and, and like speaking up for people that are hurting. But I want us to consider justice on an interpersonal scale in our relationships because it's easy, again, to go to a march, but we fail to recognize that being a person of justice on a grand scale starts with being a person of mercy and grace on an interpersonal scale. You don't get to do the... It's like he that is faithful in the least will also be faithful in much. Haman represents the selfishness of humanity. We as people, we all have power. And sometimes the word power is conflated with position. Like just because you have or don't have a position doesn't mean you don't have power. In fact, if you love someone or someone loves you, you have power over them. If they have confided in you, if they've trusted you, you carry power over them. And what we do with that power shows who we really are as people. In the case of Haman, he used both his position and power to try to step on Mordecai. And 
I want you guys to consider something else. If you have to go out of your way to get what, you're, what you want, be it a job, a position, money, accolades, a relationship, it's not that necess- those things are inherently wrong, but if you have to go out of your way to get it by stepping on people, by misappropriating your interpersonal power, the key- that is a key sign that you are not walking in the will of God. I want to, for a moment, let's think about Jacob. Jacob was given the birthright by God. How did Jacob go about getting the birthright? He stole it from his brother. He lied to his father. He deceived everyone. And as a result, he spent so much of his life on the run. He never saw his mother alive again. His cousin, what is his cousin's name? What is his cousin's name? No, no. He like, how did I just like forget this? Anyways, the person that was a father to Rachel. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Reggie, he deceived him for so many years. As a result of Jacob's deceit, he paid. I also want you to consider Abraham. Abraham did something similar. God promised him a child, but he and his wife used their power over their handmaid, Hagar, forced her to have their child. And then when God blessed him with the promise, they exiled her and the child. And the implications of that decision still ring through presently in in modern day. When you misappropriate the power you have or the privilege you have, the position you have to get what you want, it will be your undoing. The irony of this story is that Haman hang from the gallows that he built for someone else. And I think that is a law of life. Remember when humanity chooses, it chooses from a place of scarcity. Only scarcity tells you that I must get exactly what I want by any means necessary. Because if you are trusting God with your future, you know that he will provide for you in his way and in his time. Scarcity justifies inflicting pain on others to bring yourself joy. I was at a friend's house once, and his nephew was playing with the little doggo. And he was kind of like bothering the dog, and the dog was squealing. And uh, the little nephew was like laughing, like, ha, ha, ha. And my friend was like, how can you be happy knowing that you're hurting him? I actually don't think my friend remembers this, or maybe, maybe he does. But that like stood out to me, that statement. Because I feel like I tried to live my life with that consideration. I think about some of the hardest seasons in my life where the story would have been completely different if someone would have just thought, man, how would this affect Ezrika? Or if I would have considered, how will this action affect this person? How can I be happy knowing that I'm inflicting pain on someone else, that I'm being deceitful? God does not build my joy on someone else's pain. And so in the book of Esther, again, we ask the question, where is God? I can tell you right now, God was not in the actions of Xerxes, and he was not in the actions of Haman. God was not the one leading them to make these choices. Though in the beginning for Haman, it seemed as if he was doing a good thing by telling the king, there is a people in this town or in this kingdom who will not bow down to you. Haman was being duplicitous. And again, 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 he hung from the gallow that he built for someone else. Growing up, my mom would say a quote, oh, what tangled webs we weave when at first we try to deceive. And we could show that quote on the screen. My mom said it. <laughs> Uh, And I've always just loved that. 
God is calling us to live a life of integrity in so many ways. And that includes, again, the way we treat people in our personal lives. So Haman makes his move. There are moves and counter moves in this divine game of chess. But if Haman is the absolute worst, then we see something beautiful in the character of Mordecai. Mordecai represents the vision and humility of God. There is something to be said about men of integrity. There is something to be said about men of honor. We know that historically, a lot of men have done some pretty damaging things, but there will always be men like Xerxes and Haman. I, at this stage in my life now, choose to celebrate the men that are like Mordecai. Your value cannot be overestimated. Mordecai was the one responsible for calling Esther to action, and that is the blessing of a good man. He truly knew who Esther was because he was like literally related to her, so he didn't and raised her. But more than just knowing her on like a family level, he knew that she was a woman of power, a woman of action. He understood her power and he didn't try to stifle it. That is in such stark contrast to Xerxes who saw the power of Vashti and literally created laws to keep her silent. Good men move with integrity and grace. They call others to action. They see others through the lens of God. Good women too, but I mean obviously. They see others through the lens of God, and they urge those around them to mirror their Savior. In a world of Haman and Xerxes, be a Mordecai. Our world desperately needs you, good men. So here now we've discussed the key characters. We've discussed Xerxes, what he represents, what Esther represents, Mordecai and Haman. So now that we've explored some of the lessons we can learn from them on an individual level, I want to consider, let's go back to the main character, the star of the show, if you will, Esther. My friend Lisa tells me that Esther means star, and I believe her. So, so let's go back to the star of the show, Esther. As a person, I really enjoy exploring both like my own personal motivations, like why I do the things that I do, but also I like to look at other people's motivations. So as I've been reflecting on the story of Esther for literal months, I've asked myself over and over and over again, what gave Esther the courage to go into the king? Why did Esther go into the king? And the implications of this is if the king didn't summon you, if he didn't call you and you went into him, you were going to die unless he like extended his golden scepter. So when Esther, knowing that her people were on the verge of death, decided to walk into the king's presence, she was risking her life. I asked myself, why? What about Esther caused her to go into the king? I want us to look up. Uh, Esther 4, or this, it tells us this in Esther 4, chapter 8 through 11, but we don't have to read the full verse. Esther was fully aware of the fact that if she went into the king to try to save her people, she would die. My conclusion as I've reflected on why Esther was courageous enough to go into the king is actually a simple one. Esther knew 
who she was. Like Esther understood who she was in Christ. Earlier I mentioned that there were five characters in this story. Thus far, I've only talked about four. And the reason for that is I want to introduce to you the key character, the actual star of this show, and her name is Hadassah. Hadassah is actually the same person as Esther. They don't have split personalities, no. But Hadassah is Esther's Jewish name. To the world around her, to King Xerxes, to Haman, to her, her uh, concubine, or not her concubines, <laughs> to her handmaids, to everyone in the kingdom, they knew her as Esther. But Esther knew herself as Hadassah. She understood that a higher calling than being a queen to some pagan man was being the daughter of God. Hadassah is the one that had the courage to go into the king. That is who she was at birth. And I think this is so beautiful because if Esther represents a woman that is chosen for being everything the world tells her to be, Hadassah represents a woman or a person who understands that they are chosen by God. They understand who they are on a fundamental level. Hadassah was the one that chose to go in to the king. And when God chooses you, he doesn't choose you for superfluous things. He doesn't choose you for vain things. He chooses you for your heart. He chooses you for your voice. He chooses you for your story. Hadassah went in on behalf of her people because she valued the opinion of God more than the opinion of man. She understood that it was a greater risk to live trying to honor humanity than to die trying to honor God. Esther was chosen by men for her silence. Hadassah was chosen by God for her voice. Queen Esther knew her place and her identity in Christ despite her environment and her circumstances. She didn't let the opinions of those around her change or define her. The funny thing about me being chosen to speak on Esther, <laughs> I guess God is doing something in my life. <laughs> because I have for years struggled with not letting my environment define me. Not letting this community define me. Not letting the ideals and ideologies of people constrict me. Not letting myself be, be feeling constantly overlooked or rejected or forgotten tell the story that defines my life. The truth of the matter is, very often, I would rather be Esther. I would rather just be chosen by the world. But God is not calling us to be what the world tells us to be. He's calling us to be what he knows and who he knows we are. At the beginning, I mentioned that the book of Esther asks the question, where is God? And since God, again, is not mentioned in this book, a part of the answer to that question is God is found in Esther and Mordecai, people who know their identity in Christ. And the truth is God will always be found in the lives and actions of people who know their identity in Christ. If Esther entertained the lie that her value came from being a queen, she would have not gone in to save the people. The lie of our value and our worth is perhaps the biggest lie we tell ourselves. 
And this is a lie I'm sure we've all contended with for all of our lives. In fact, it's a lie that started before any of us were born. This lie was first told in the Garden of Eden. I want to take us for a moment to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Here in Genesis, we see Eve having a conversation with the devil. And the verse says, The serpent said to the woman, You will not certainly die, for God knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When I used to read that story, I would think that the lie that the devil told, and I feel like he told several layers of lies, to be honest, but I, think, I would think the lie that the devil told was that, you know, God is withholding something good from you. Because he says, no, the, the Lord knows that if you eat from this fruit, like you're going to get knowledge and wisdom. You're going to know more. So I always took the lie as the devil saying that God isn't being fully honest with you. God isn't giving you the best. But now I realize that the lie is found in this statement. You will become like God. And the reason this is a lie, let's go backwards to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And the verse says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Skip down to 27. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female. He created them. The reason that's such a nefarious lie is because there was never a moment in, S, in, in e, Adam and Eve's existence that they were not like God. The devil came to them and said, listen, this is what you need to do to be like God. This is what you need to do to be whole, to be complete, to be loved, to be chosen. But they were already chosen. They were chosen, they, they were created because they were chosen. They were created to be like God, made in the image of God. And this is the same lie the devil tells us. He tells us that we are not like our father, that we need to go out and get money or relationships or status, and then we will feel the completion we so desperately desire. He tells us that we need to do these things or go to these places or act this way, and then we will feel whole. But what happened in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve did what the devil suggested would make them like God, and it separated them from God. And that is the case with many of our own choices. We are so desperately looking to be whole that we go out and do things searching for it, thinking it will fill that void, but it pulls us further and further away from our Father. That is the lie that the devil told, that you need to do something more to be chosen, to be seen, and to be loved by God. There was a never a moment in your life that you were not made in the image of your Father. And so God's response to this is something I think we have to internalize. We have to internalize this truth. Go back to, go to Genesis 3 uh, verses, chapter 3 verses 9 through 11. And in these like verses are my favorite questions in all of the Bible. After Adam and Eve, of course, sinned, they became naked. They felt it. They, you know, put on little hula skirts uh, made of fig leaves. Um, and God comes to them and he says, then the Lord God called to man and said, where are you? And this verse used to actually like 
irk me a little bit because I'm like, why is God asking where they are when he fully knows where they are? But he's not asking about a physical location, is he? I think he's asking about the state of their heart. I think he's asking about the state of their mind. He's saying, Adam, Eve, where are you? And he, Adam responds, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Since when is Adam afraid of his creator? Because what came into play as a result of being separated from God is shame. And now my favorite question in all of his, well, the Bible, is <laughs> who told you you were naked? That question means so much to me because what it's really saying is, why do you feel shame? Where is this shame coming from? Notice God didn't ask, like, who told you you sinned? Because for sure they sinned. They absolutely sinned. But he didn't address their sin. He addressed their shame. He addressed proximity. He said, hey, listen, you messed up for sure. You messed up. <laughs> but I don't want you to think that you messing up changes my love for you. I don't want you to think that you messing up changes how close I want to be to you. I don't want you to carry the shame of your choices or the things that were done to you. Who told you you were naked? Who told you you weren't enough? Who told you you weren't good enough or smart enough? You weren't spiritual enough or Christian enough? You weren't pretty enough or wealthy enough? Who told you you were naked? I'll tell you who. It's the devil. <laughs> can't stand that guy. <laughs> it's the devil. That is the lie that he plants in our hearts that causes us to chase all of these fleeting things. And it's the lie that I know I've internalized for as long as, well, I was going to say for as long as I existed, but I don't think like one-year-old me internalized that lie. But for as long as I've been a young adult, <laughs> as long as I could, I guess, like make decisions, is that there is something wrong with me. I need to figure this out. But as I've been reflecting on the story of Esther, I realize that God is telling us that there is absolutely nothing you can do, will do, have done, dream of doing, possibly, maybe, likely to do, that will change how much he loves you. It will not change how he sees you. And shame is such a big thing. I, I've been saying to myself, if God speaks in the language of love, the devil speaks in the language of shame. And shame is also like highly contagious. We confer that on people around us. But God is asking you today, who told you you were naked? And I think this is what Hadassah understood. The reason we went back to Esther it's because I was asking the question, or the reason we went back to Genesis is because I was asking the question, like, what gave Esther the courage to defy the standards of society? And I think I asked that question because your girl right here, I need to figure it out. I need to understand for myself. I need to know what made Esther speak so boldly. I need to understand what gave her the courage to stand in the face of imminent threat. Because I want to be a woman. I want to be like Hadassah. I want to know my worth in Christ. If we continue to live our lives convinced that we have to do just one more thing, that we have to be in one more relationship, 
that we have to get one more degree and then we will, like, we will be worth it. We will waste our lives. And I think, actually I know, I know that the, the biggest hindrance between us living as God has called us to live versus hiding, it really comes down to our mindset. My thing since going to Hawaii for a friend's wedding, I love you Susie, is change your mind, change your life. If we change the narrative we entertain, we will find the courage to be just like Esther or Hadassah. I especially love in the story, we're going back to the story of Esther now, what Haman, I'm sorry, Haman said nothing good. What Mordecai said to Esther, he said to her in Esther 4, chapter 14, and it can be on the screen. For if you keep silent at this time, liberation and rescue will arise for the Jews from another place. And you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. We, we may not be on the verge of saving a nation. I don't know, though. I don't know what you do in your personal life. You might be solid. Good for you. But each of us, each of us today has a calling that God has put on our lives. Are for such a time as this may be this moment right now. It may be the next interaction we have with a person. It may be the idea that undergirds the way we choose our career, our partners, our friends, because we understand we are called to honor the life God has given us. I think it's so beautiful because Esther, again, a woman of tremendous courage, I believe she had that courage because she trusted not that God would save her, but that she was enough regardless of being saved. I want the band to come up. <laughs> As the band comes up. <laughs> Something Heather Thompson Day said to me um, at the conference, you know, I was talking to her about some of my difficulties I faced just in my time in this community. She looked at me and she said, God gets one chance at you. And that really struck me. God gets one chance at you. In fact, if you think about it, for God to recreate as Rika Joanna Bennett as I am today, he would have to create my mom and dad over, right? But not only would he have to recreate my mom, he would have to like recreate all of my friends that make me who I am. And to recreate my friends, he would have to create their parents and so on and so forth. Like you, he would just have to literally recreate my mom, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, and everyone else's great-grandparents. And if you trace it back, God would have to go back to Adam and Eve just to recreate me. Do you understand the significance of your, your, your life? There is no one else in history that can ever be you. You are a singular occurrence. You're not just living in history. You are history. That is a weighty realization that God gets one chance at you. And not only does God get one chance at you, you were made in the image of God. You were made to tell a story that only you can tell. No one else can tell your story. 
I asked the question, I was like, how many people have ever existed since the beginning of, the t- of time? It's 117 billion. That means there have been 117 billion little stories about the love of God. But not everyone has chosen to be true to that story. If you choose not to tell your story of who God is, no one else can do it. That story is forever lost. And I think that's the weight Esther carried as she walked into the king. She understood that God's specific path for her life was to be on the verge or walk into imminent death. But she honored it because she knew again that being in line with God's will and God's calling and God's purpose was far greater than being known as a queen. For the last couple of years, I've had a hard time in this community. Ah, when I practiced this, I did not cry. (laughs) I I don't think uh, people would quite understand how much anxiety I've struggled with being here. I've struggled with being black in this community. I've struggled with being a woman in this community and just like this world. I've felt unwanted, unseen, misunderstood, and I realized this all caused me to want to hide. Because whether I knew it or not, my desire was just to be chosen, was just to be accepted, was just to fit in. I said to myself, maybe if I looked like them or spoke like them, then maybe my path wouldn't be so hard. And despite the times of my crippling anxiety and even depression, I still pushed forward and I tried to serve my community as best as I could. But to be honest, I've wanted to hide for so long. In fact, if you knew me before 2020, a lot of people are like, oh, you were so much more extroverted. (laughs) I was, I was a little free spirit. I'm not anymore, that's okay. Maybe I've matured. I would speak less. I used to do so much more on the stage, like Phil would know this. I would preach often, I would speak often, I would share often. But instead, I would spend so many nights in my room wishing that my life could be something different. It was my friend David Zarka, one of the elders who spoke so beautifully about the life of Moses a while back, that said to me one time, like there was a potluck and I was like, nah, I'm not feeling social. David said, but you also need to consider that you have an effect on people too, that your life blesses people too. I was like, boy, stop. (laughs) I did not want to hear that rebuke, (laughs) but obviously it did something to me because I'm talking about it now. (laughs) Consider that you have an effect on people too. In an effort to keep myself safe, it was my community that was affected because I stopped sharing the ideas and thoughts and experiences and story that God had given me. It was as if my life was also a game of chess. Moves and counter moves. 
And sometimes I would look at my board and wish I could just flip the table because I don't like this game anymore. It looks like I'm on the verge of losing. Or I would look at someone else's game and say, man, their game looks so fun. (laughs) It's so simple. They look like they are going to win. I would rather forfeit my game. But God has been reminding me, as Rika, you only get the one game. I only get the one you. God gets one chance at you. And our games, yes, there are difficulties. Sometimes we fail many times and it's hard to not internalize that. We are rejected many times and it's, not, it's hard to not internalize that. We, are, we, we make mistakes time and time again and it's hard to not internalize that. I want to trade my game. I don't want to play in this anymore. But the beautiful thing about that is like the, video, like the image of Checkmate, in those moments, when it feels like, when it feels like I am on the verge of losing, God reminds me that he has one more move. If you could see an aerial view of this chess game, I actually was playing a real game. And the opener that I use is called the Queen's Gambit. And a gambit in chess is an opening, is, it's, it's when um, in the opening, a player, player makes a sacrifice, typically a pawn, for the sake of some compensating advantage. The queen's gambit. Hadassah played the queen's gambit. She made a sacrifice and the sacrifice was herself for the advantage of her people, to honor all of heaven. I ask you today, What are you sacrificing? Are you sacrificing your calling so that you could be accepted by whatever the world tells us to be? Or are you willing to sacrifice what seems like comfort, what seems like ease, to be who God needs you to be? Again, in my life right now, there's so much uncertainty, like for sure. And it feels like sometimes I've come to an impasse. And it feels like sometimes... I'm about, like, the the checkmate is about to be called against me, but God is reminding me again. He is saying, as we get through this together, and I'm not the only one that cries out, where is God? The world cries out, where is God? The person next to you has asked, where is God? They don't want to play their game either. Maybe they are overwhelmed, but God says to them, hey, My beloved, I have one more move that will result in your victory. And her name is Ezrika. Her name is Linda or Andrina. Is Janice or Lisa. You are the move that gets someone to the victory. We are the Esthers and Hadassahs that take up our cross, take up our courage and stand in the gap for the world that is dying. They are begging to know where God is. He's in you. God is in you. So even if the word God is never explicitly said, you honoring your identity in Christ will show the world his love 
his grace, his mercy. I see God again in my friend Luis or David, Adrian or Alex, in the good men in this world. I see God in the smiles, in the heart that you carry. And if we tell the story of God, me telling a story is like on an individual level will never be as powerful as us doing it together. And that's why we are community. The world cries out. The world cries out. And if we, like Hadassah, find the courage to be who God created us to be, we will be that difference in someone's story. You will be the answer to the question that they ask. You, taking up your cross, honoring your identity in Christ, can be the difference between a crushing blow in someone's life, life getting too hard for them to bear, or you can be the reason that they cry out, checkmate. Hey, thank you so much for joining us for the Night Church Podcast. We really are excited for where we're going, and you can help us in that mission. There's a few things that you can do. Number one is just stay connected. So if you want to follow up what's going on in the young adult ministry here at Loma Linda University Church, follow us on Instagram at Praxis Ministry. And then the other way to really build from this is to financially contribute. Your donations make such a big impact. And so if you go to lluc.org slash give, you can connect with Praxis Ministry there. On a one-time gift or a reoccurring commitment, it makes such a difference. Well, we love you, care for you, and may God bless you richly as you take theory and make it into practice.